Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. You can save thousands off MSRP with Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash carbine. All right. Army veteran, New York fire firefighter, Niels Jorgensen. Welcome to the show. Also the host of the 20 for 20 podcast. Niels, we got a lot to talk about. I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be exciting. Take us back. Tell us a little bit about your background. You got a number of things to cover. What you've, you've done, you've pretty much run the gamut for different jobs you've had. Yes, sir, Joe. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's an honor. Um, I'm truly flattered to be here. Uh, first off, let me warn you, I'm Irish and I can talk, so this may take three or four hours, but uh, <laughs> I have to gift the gab for my Irish mother. God bless her. Uh, yeah, I, I've been uh, very blessed. I'm, I'm Nils Jorgensen. I'm a retired New York City fire lieutenant, and uh, I was a weekend warrior. I, I wasn't a combatant. Uh, I did eight years in the U.S. Army Reserves and uh, New York Army National Guard. Uh, initially as a military policeman and then a combat medic assigned to an armored cav unit. So I saw no combat. Uh, I would have honorably gone and, and done that if, if need be. Uh, during the first Gulf War, came quite close. Uh, we were out in Camp Irwin Desert in California getting ready to go to Iraq. And President Bush then ended the war and we were sent home. So our orders were uh, rescinded and we we got back on a plane and went back to New York. So uh, never did serve alongside the guys in combat, but they truly are my heroes. Um, that was pretty much came from, I was about 18 years old. I was in college in New York City, riding a ferry at 530 in the morning for a 7 a.m. class and just wasn't feeling the motivation. Uh, I took the police and fire tests and I was waiting those out. You know, you had to be 20 to get hired. So my dad knew I was goofing off and failing. So he says, well, if you're not going to do it, then, then go join the Army. So me being a wise guy, I went to a recruiter, uh, walked off the Staten Island Ferry, went over to the recruiter's office and just looked at who was there, who was sitting in the desk that day that happened to be an army recruiter. <laughs> and I didn't have the courage to pull the plug for four years because uh, I knew about a year and a half, two years away, I was going to be sworn in as a police officer. So I decided to go the, uh, the reserve route. And few weeks later, I called up my dad from basic training crying, saying I want to come home. And he started laughing, saying they're going to make a man out of you. I'll see you. <laughs> and he hung up the phone. So uh, best best thing he ever did, best best encouragement, best advice. Uh, you, you went off to basic training and your parents didn't even know you'd left? No, no. He knew I left, but he I, I called him up. I, I was a oh, wise okay. guy. I, I called him up that night and I said, yeah, dad, I joined the army. And, and uh, he says, ah, good, good. They'll make a man out of you. So oh, a couple of months later, when I shipped out and called him, that, that first day, we got one quick phone call, and I was crying like a baby saying, Dad, I want to come <laughs> home. And he just giggled. He's My dad's a great guy, salt of the earth, but tough, tough Brooklyn guy. He was uh, an Air Force firefighter and then went on to be a New York City firefighter oh. for 34 years. And the type of guy he is, he had terminal cancer at one point in his life and was going to work on full chemotherapy. And uh, he had a uh, test drug at the time in 1978. And uh, as doctor said, you're going to be a test pilot for a new drug. And he says, doc, I'm, I'm a fireman. I'm not a pilot. She goes, no, no, you don't understand. You're, you're going to die if you don't take this. So he said, all right, bring it on. And uh, after four years of every two weeks getting tortured with chemo, 
he's uh, he's still with us at 82 years old. And he just uh, we we sit and we laugh about that story and many others. Uh, awesome. But yeah, he, he he and my mom were very very uh, very helpful in my formative years. Great parents. My mom's an immigrant. She's off the boat from Ireland and uh, still has the accent. And just the most wonderful woman in the world who takes care of everyone else besides herself. Uh, that's her. That's what she does. She just helps people. And uh, my dad now happily retired and uh, he's enjoying himself. He's, he's had some issues, but he just keeps on going. And yeah. um, much as that type of folks were from back then, they don't complain. They just they just get it done. Right. They they thank God they love America uh, and they just they just get it done every day. Right. And, uh, yeah, so I got out, I did my, my basic and then, uh, you know, my, my tours of, uh, reserve duty and then ended up very briefly with New York city emergency medical service as an EMT, uh, which is now under the fire department. But back then it was, uh, their own entity and, uh, did a brief, brief stint with them, moved on to the police department and did uh, two years, just, uh, just short of two years. And I loved being a cop. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I loved helping people, but. I wanted to be my dad. My dad was my hero uh, growing up, my, my role model. Just I remember walking into the firehouse at five years old and looking around with all these giants with mustaches <laughs> and, uh, you know, smelling the smoke from the gear and, and, and the, you know, the, the truck, the tires and, you know, the oil from the, from the diesel motor. And, and just like it was like, yeah, this is it, man. This is what I'm going to do. <laughs> so at five years old, I kind of knew that. Uh, we briefly moved to Ireland. Uh, my dad had a, uh, retirement option at 20 years. And my mom was worried that, uh, he had just gotten into remission that he may not live. So we went to Ireland to be with her safety net, her, her huge family. And, uh, after 10 months, my father's like, Nope, we're going back. This is in America. And not to disrespect my Irish relatives. Cause I still have a lot of family there. I love Ireland. It's a great, great place, great people, but it's not America. Mm-hmm. And the minute I got back, I thanked God I was back on our soil. And my dad got back on the department for 14 more years. And uh, so I, I realized firsthand what a true, true blessing being an American citizen is. And I harnessed that and embraced it and ran with it. Uh, had a great time as a cop. Felt like I was trying to make a difference every day. I, I worked in a really bad uh, crack infested neighborhood back in the late 80s mm. during the crack wars. And I saw firsthand how, how thankless being a cop can be. There was a young officer that was struck in the head with a bucket of cement, uh, basically by you know gangbangers that were trying to deal drugs and scare us off the beat. And this poor gentleman, I didn't know him. He was in a different command. But from what I understand, 33 years later, he's still in a rehab institute, basically in a vegetative state. Mm. And what upsets me is, you know, you take all the, the politics and what have you out of everything. But those are the stories that we don't hear um, right. about gentlemen like this. So that was a real uh, education in, uh, in life, in life operations, so to speak. Uh, moved on to the fire department and just, just wow, I found my priesthood. You know, my Irish mother was lobbying for me to be a priest. And uh, I, I let her down and I got married and had three beautiful kids, beautiful wife. No regrets. Uh, you know, if, if you could have been married as a priest, I might have just actually done that. But I uh, went on to the fire department and life was cruising. Uh, I was on autopilot. I was in my lane. I was getting paid to do what I loved and I would have done it for free. Uh, I would never tell the mayor that, you know, I would have done it for free, but my first vacation, I asked my captain if I could just rescind it, stay and ride on the truck. And he said, kid, 
I'm going to send you for a head exam. You better get out of here. I'll see you in two weeks. And I just didn't want to take a vacation. I wanted to be on that truck. Um, strange thing about that truck was that was ladder 105, my first command. And this just the best man in the world, the sweetest, most uh, kind, understanding, but no BS guy I worked under was a man named Henry Miller. And uh, I went to the first bombing in 1993 with Henry under his wing, so to speak, his you know, senior man looking out for the young buck. And uh, he looked around after after the explosion and he said, ah, you know, they they, they didn't do it right. They blew it up here in the, in the middle. But if they did it in a corner, the, uh, the whole building would have dropped for a half a mile. And the sad irony to that is Hank Miller was on duty 9-11 that morning, and he was the senior man again in 105. Mm-hmm. And uh, my beloved lieutenant, Dennis Oberg from Ladder 114, this is my command I was riding with, I was assigned to that morning. Uh, his rookie son, or as we call probies, Dennis Jr. was uh, the junior man underneath Hank. And uh, Hank and Dennis were killed that morning. So one of the one of the nucleuses of this uh, project is is to to not let stories about Hank and Dennis Jr. and all these brave, great, wonderful people just slip by into the annals of history and just be dusted over. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, Joe, I feel like that's happening right now. You know, uh, I, I was off duty that morning and I was working one of my side jobs. You know, we all have two and three jobs up there to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. And my little girl, who's now a nurse. Uh, she said to me, she was four and a half and I was leaving the house at about six 30 in the morning. And she said, daddy, which truck are you driving today? The fire truck, the oil truck or the boar's head truck? Because <laughs> I had, I had three jobs. And then sometimes you even fill in as a contract bouncer or a contract security guy, or, you know, you, you took whatever work you can get, you know? Mm-hmm. And I looked at her and smiled. They said, no, honey, I'm on the oil truck today. She said, okay, daddy, then you'll be safe. You'll be okay. Cause she realized at that young age, the danger of the fire truck. And my wife's father was a retired FDNY. Her, her, my dad was retired FDNY. So she kind of, she kind of grasped that concept, I guess, kind of young. And uh, so I headed off to do the oil. And I remember it was a beautiful day. Like today, it was just a blue sky. It was, it was a summer like September day. Uh, as some folks down the Jersey shore, like to call it the short summer labor days ended the beaches are still nice, but they're empty and no one's there. Mm-hmm. And it was a short summer day and uh, left with the truck. All of a sudden I hear on the news radio, uh, tower has been struck by, struck by a plane. So I, I turned around and we were just on the edge of the harbor, uh, the north end of Staten Island. Basically, you could see the Statue of Liberty and just keep looking across the harbor and there's the towers. And I saw one of them, you know, just dark, dark smoke. And I figured a Learjet might've veered off track and, and, uh, you know, uh, hit the plane, you know, and now I actually, I'm a student pilot. So I, I totally understand the dynamics a little more, but I just thought, okay, this is going to be a, a fifth alarm assignment. You know, <clears throat> in New York, they don't want us just running in to, to big situations because you're not on much, much like the military, you know, there's a command structure and, and you, you have standing orders and, but now if you show up and, and no one's expecting you and you don't have gear, you're, you're really not helping the operation. Right. So I, I thought about it and I said, now nah, this is fifth alarm that this is just going to be a bad day for some guys, but there's not anything I can do. So I stood by for a minute and then all of a sudden the second plane a few minutes later hit and I said, okay, I, I knew immediately this was terrorism. I ran the truck back into the yard. I, I threw the keys to my boss and I told him I had to leave. And, uh, 
I just headed towards towards my firehouse in Staten Island, uh, excuse me, from Staten Island to Brooklyn to Ladder 114. And my wife got on the phone. I was heading over to Verrazano Bridge. Uh, it's uh, that's the bridge they charge you twenty dollars to cross in there in New York. It's uh, but uh, right. so anyway, I, I shouldn't be so sarcastic, but uh, it's people know it well from that area. Uh, but anyway, normally it's bumper to bumper, and uh, it was empty. So my wife calls and she doesn't really curse much, and she said, "Don't. Where are you going?" I said, "I don't know. I I, I know." I know I should go to the firehouse and get my gear, but maybe I should just go right there. And my father would always tell me about recall and recall meant that the city would put out a mandate where any police fire or EMS off duty is obligated to go report to their command, get their gear and await further assignment, await further standing orders. So my wife said, listen to what your dad would say. And her dad was a fireman. So she knew the deal go to your firehouse because those effing buildings will come down and you will effing die. And, and I was stunned. She just doesn't talk that way. And oh. I said, I got to go. I love you. And I hung up the phone and the exit for the firehouse was there. It was either get off or just shoot straight in on Brooklyn Queens expressway to the tunnel uh, the tunnel. That's now famous uh, firefighter, Steven Siller, who was off duty, right. five children, he got his truck and his gear to the mouth of the tunnel, but it was back, backed up and he got out of his truck and he put on his 60 pounds of gear and he ran through the tunnel. And now they have the famous tunnel to towers race and fund that more or less builds homes for gold star families and any line of duty first responder or military that's killed or, or seriously injured in the line of duty. And that's another nucleus of our project is we want to help this fund, which is tremendous. They are the ones rescuing the rescuers. They protect the protectors. They, they put everything on the line to help any family in need. Like our 13 beautiful brethren that just passed now last week, they tunnel to towers is there taking care of those families needs. And rightfully so they did those families deserve anything that could be available to them. That's so, yeah. And um, so anyway, uh, I, I veered off a little bit, but yeah, so I, I, I got to my firehouse and um, I checked in and my truck was gone. 114 was, was gone. And I looked on the computer dispatch and the ticket had them going to World Trade Center. Mm -hmm. So I immediately flipped on the department radio and I called command. I called the 40th battalion and I said, sir, um, this is Jorgensen reporting off duty. Uh, what's our orders? He said, okay, get 12 men. Once you have 12 men equipped, sign in the book, make sure everyone is logged in. We know that you were there, get a city bus, commandeer it and get to the towers at the very least, get to the base of the Brooklyn bridge there. At the time there was some Intel that the battery tunnel may be a target. Sorry. Right. And, uh, they didn't want us going to the tunnel. So we did that. 12 guys came in. Uh, one of the lieutenants came on, he took command. We got our gear. We went outside, we flagged down a bus. Uh, much to the passengers' upsetment, they had no idea what was going on. We said, folks, we need your bus. I'm sorry, you have to go. We explained to the driver. I never got his name. I wish I could thank him. And he said, okay. He told the lieutenant, sir, I cannot give you my bus. I will drive my bus and get you there. And he told his dispatcher what was going on. And this brave guy loaded us up. We stopped at two other firehouses to grab off-duty personnel, uh, <laughs> one of them being Engine Company 201, uh, which was the assigned company of my childhood best friend, John Shart. And Johnny uh, was on the on-duty platoon. Uh, 
201 and uh he he died that morning and uh we continued on down the 239 engine we grabbed those guys and then we uh we just headed over but in the interim we could hear the department radio and uh prior to leaving i was in the firehouse and i heard my lieutenant dennis oberg who didn't realize that he'd lose his son that morning and he said to the dispatch in manhattan he says ladder 114 to manhattan we're 1084 which means we're on scene uh where do you want us and they explained go to albany and west to the to the uh, command post and our nickname is tally ho which stems from a, an old airborne ranger who jumped normandy named jack carroll and uh when radios first came out in the fire trucks in the 40s instead of saying 10-4 he'd say tally ho and uh 114's responding tally ho so that's stuck and uh we're the proud uh, holder of that out of 350 engines and ladders and squads and rescues. We're the only guys in the city that get recognized by their nickname and it, it pisses some guys off, but uh, it's, it's just, you know, that's it. It's, uh, you know, bad Jack made that happen. And uh, Dennis got the men there and they proceeded in and they were heading into, I guess, over by the Marriott at the time. And uh, unbeknownst to us, they, as the first building came down, Dennis, looked up and saw something wrong. And he told the guys just turn around and go. And they, they ran for their lives and dove under a truck. And the guys that were 40 feet behind them, when, uh, when the dust settled, they were all gone. And, uh, unfortunately, John, my friend, John and Dennis jr. Were, were in that vicinity in that area near the Marriott. And, um, they, they died with their companies. Uh, so we got off the city, we got to the city bus, we got on it, we rode it. Uh, as we were at the Brooklyn bridge, the other, the second tower went down and, um, right away myself. Anyway, I was just crushed with guilt because I figured, you know, 500 of my friends at least are gone. And, uh, it ended up being 343 of the fire department, 23 port authority police, 17 NYPD and, uh, a dozen, a dozen medics, EMTs and uh, state and federal court agents and federal agents, uh, that were killed. And, uh, I just kind of knew and it got my gut that uh, they were all gone. And, and I skirted it by not going right to the scene. And, and it just, it just ate me still eats me this day because I think to myself, if, if I didn't follow that, that recall and have my father in, in the back of my ear reminded me, I probably would have went in there and, uh, I don't think I'd be here talking to you. So that, that, that just, uh, you know, leaves you a little flat, but we, we got off the bus and, uh, we were basically mustered up. Um, now they were trying to get some sort of secondary wave of guys to, to now do searches for our own guys. And, um, there was a little chaos. Hey, for hey, a little while. Yeah. Not, I was actually based in New York for a couple of years, but not being well-versed on streets and buildings. When the when the second tower, how how close where were you guys? How close were you guys when the first one and the second one, first and second tower went down? When the first tower went down, we were still in the firehouse deploying. Um, oh, okay, you know I'm I'm going to get the minutes uh, wrong, Joe. I, I I shame on me. I should know the exact timing and whatnot. But, oh, yeah. well, but we were just getting on the bus. We we're just about to get on a bus when the first one came down. Okay, and I think there was almost a 50 minute gap between yeah. this, and in that in that in incipient 50 minutes uh we were then in transit down to down to the uh the bad uh brooklyn bridge uh -huh. and the problem then was the traffic started to get really bad because people were fleeing 
there was panic. The the uh, outbound side of the bridge was bumper to bumper with pedestrian traffic. People were literally running over the bridge. So uh, yeah. the timing the timing for us is it delayed us in getting there, and that was another part of that guilt. You know, we should have been there. We should have been there. Um, so we landed right by uh, City Hall Park. Um, the bus couldn't go any further because of the the dust and debris from the first one going down. It was just sheer chaos when we got there. So he dumped us off over by City Hall Park, which would be, say, uh, uh, I guess, you know, quarter mile, quarter mile to, to the Trade Center site away from it, um, heading to the east. So when we mustered up and got our orders, initially we ended up um, in and around the area of seven, which then came down just as we were proceeding in that way. Uh, they were trying to basically form grids of where to put the secondary waves because now hundreds and hundreds of guys off duty were coming in, you know, various yeah. means of the backs of pickup trucks, city buses, subways, uh, however the hell they can get in. Yeah. Some guys got a ride in the back of a motorcycle. I mean, they just, they did whatever they could to get there. So you guys so, just gotten off the bus and you were on foot heading towards the world trade centers. Yes, sir. It, it had come down basically while we were on the bridge, but mm-hmm. then, then the, uh, you know, the aftermath of that was, was just, again, a little bit of chaos because obviously the, the dust and um, it was just a matter of now we, we couldn't just go running randomly anywhere. We had to wait and figure out, okay, where are we most needed? You know, where is, cause you know, our needs are very similar to military. We go where the life, the danger to life is first, first and foremost. So now there was such a massive field of life in danger. It was just a matter of, command saying okay we need 50 guys here we need 50 guys there we need you know yeah. it was so it it was a little frustrating because it took a little while to get an assignment and we just wanted to be in there helping um and, and neil's i don't i don't mean to trip up your flow here no but that's fine I, yeah. I cued in on something you said earlier um not where you were but where some of your friends were at and your best friend were they not in the the World Trade Center when it collapsed, but they they were still killed as a result? Is that is that what you said, or were they? Well, it's, the, it's hard. It's hard for it? us. It's hard for us to really determine because the way everything ended up in the aftermath was just you know 110 stories were now a 10 story pile of destruction and wreckage. Right. So we believe that some guys were coming in the Marriott hotel down on the West side would, would connect into the, the trade center complex. Mm-hmm. So there was also people trapped in the Marriott. There was uh plane wreckage that was in before the, the buildings collapsed. There was, you know, multiple sections of, of the Marriott that were destroyed by plane debris coming down. So guys were being deployed all over the trade center complex for, for rescue and recovery. So it's really hard to say, like we never really, I myself anyway, was never told exactly their assignment and exact pinpoint location, but it, it seems to be that my friend John, you know, where he was found was in that vicinity. And unfortunately, Dennis Jr. was never found, was never identified. They found their trucks. Uh, half, half the souls that were there that morning have never been identified. They, they, there was, I believe, 293 human beings intact that were able to be found and taken out. And John, my friend being one of them. So in a sense, his family had that closure. They were able to, John was found on Christmas Eve and he was buried on New Year's Eve. 
And, um, and at the time I came home days later, my wife said, well, I have some good news. We're, we're going to have another baby. And I, I felt bad because I, I kind of blew off. I said, yeah, that's great. John's wife's pregnant too, but he's dead. And then that following that Christmas, when after they found him, probably on December 26th, when they were having the wake to 27th, you know, his wife and my wife were standing face to face talking to each other. And I could see the horror on my wife's face. And as we left, she said, you know, I could picture myself being the widow. And John was greeting me. And I said, I, I knew, I knew exactly what she was thinking. And she said, I can't believe just how things went. Like, and it was that kind of day where there was no rhyme or reason to the loss. It was, if you were on shift in a certain truck, you were not going to live. If you were off shift or you happened to be, you know, sw swap a shift with a guy on that truck, you lived. And, and again, brought that guilt. And, you know, uh, in May of 02, my, my little beautiful daughter was born. And on that same week, my friend John's beautiful son was born, John Jr. And John never got to hold him. Uh, I, I got to hold my little Kathy, but uh, he never got to hold his son. And that's, that's another thing that really just rips at my soul, you know, uh, the fairness, right? Is there any fairness? And John was like the greatest guy. He had this big, goofy smile, always smiling, right? Just constantly smiling. And you just say, what the hell are you smiling about? You know, just, just life, you know? And, and uh, you know, last we, we had this Sandlot football team growing up. We used to play against these bad dudes. And John was just fierce, man. He would not, he didn't care. He's like, guys, we're going to whoop their ass. Because it was a bunch of like, you know, semi-gangs, you know, they had a team. But then after the, the game, if, if you know, they, they beat you up if you beat them. <laughs> and his thing was, we'll beat them so bad on the field to be too tired to fight. And, and in honesty, just about every single time we beat them good and they didn't want to fight. So, but John, John was that raging lion, but yet had that huge smile, like, you know, just the sweetest guy, but you know, don't poke yeah. that bear, you know? And, uh, well, yeah, hey, Niels, hey, Niels, we're going we're gonna to take a quick break and uh, we'll yeah. be back. So hold that thought. When you become a member of Navy Federal Credit Union, life gets better. We bought a few cars with Navy Federal loans over my 31 years as a member, and their fully loaded car buying experience is awesome. You can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all through one convenient place. They have low rates and pre-approval that's good for 90 days, so you know what you can afford while you're shopping. You can save thousands off MSRP with Navy Federal's car buying service powered by TrueCar. You can also get exclusive member savings with Carfax, Geico, and SiriusXM. They're always available with 24-7 member service representatives to answer any questions. Learn more at NavyFederal.org slash Carbine. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Your actual savings off MSRP may vary. Navy Federal Credit Union is federally insured by NCUA. All right, back talking with New York firefighter Niels Jorgensen. Um, Niels, before the break, you were off the bus en route to the World Trade Center as the second one come down. Um, what went on the rest of that day. And I, and I can only imagine, you know, the days and weeks following um, having to deal with that the aftermath. Yeah, Joe, we, we spent the majority of the next uh, 18 hours just basically searching grid by grid uh, for, for life, people that were possibly trapped. Um, sometimes there would be a report of possible life in a certain area. And, um, there was a big focus on a couple of uh, Port Authority police officers that were alive, that were confirmed alive and trapped. So we were also trying to assist in the, uh, the resources for that, shuttling in equipment, you know, jaws of life, uh, various cutting tools, 
So, you know, there was many people engaged in the search and we were just trying to help, help that along. Um, and then around about four in the morning, we were just basically, uh, couldn't breathe, couldn't see, uh, felt like you swallowed a, a box of razor blades. So my Lieutenant decided that we should all maybe get some medical assistance, go back to the firehouse, get checked out, cleaned up and re-gear up and come back again the following morning with, uh, more equipment. And, you know, so that's what we ended up doing. And then for the, uh, subsequent days, first few days, it was still a rescue operation. Uh, unfortunately, after those officers were rescued, there weren't uh, any other live victims. And um, we realized then after about the fourth day that it was now a recovery operation. Mm -hmm. And that recovery operation went on until May, May the 30th of 02, till the uh, site was completely closed down. Uh, my Lieutenant Dennis spent every single day there searching for his son. And uh, fortunately, Dennis Jr. was never found. Uh, as the, as the years went on after that, the months and the years, it was, we were trying to get back to normal. There was hundreds and hundreds of new hirees that we had to train and, uh, they came on during some difficult times. And then the illnesses and the deaths started happening in 03, 04, 05 guys started getting really sick. And then all of a sudden it wasn't a coincidence anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hadn't been feeling good from probably 2007, 2008 on. And kept telling medical something was wrong, something was wrong. And, you know, if you went for counseling, if you went to talk things out, you automatically were stigmatized that, you know, something was wrong, whatever. And, and you know, we did, some guys did a share, you know, we, we drank. I mean, it was part of the culture after a memorial, you know, you toast, you have toasts to a guy who's lost and whatever. And unfortunately, some guys succumb to abusing it. So you were automatically categorized as either you had PTSD or you had a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. So 2011, uh, they pulled me off the truck. My bloods were horrifically wrong. Something was way wrong. And a month later, I was literally begging for someone to tell me what the hell was wrong. And I went down figuratively and physically just went down and uh, was rushed to Brooklyn Methodist Hospital in New York. And um, paramedic that responded to the fire clinic, he saved my life. He knew right away, thought I had leukemia. Uh, he was right. And he came down with a rare and advanced form of leukemia. The doctors came in and there was a team of them. And I said, okay, once the team walks in, that's bad. And they said, well, there's some good news and there's some bad news. Bad news is you have a really rare and really advanced leukemia. The good news is we have a magic bullet. The other bad news is the magic bullet will possibly kill you. So long story quick, I got two, almost two and a half years of chemotherapy treatment in seven days huge bags of poison that just run through your body nonstop. Uh, they burned out my bone marrow and I was physically and mentally wrecked, brought to the basement, uh, lost 75 pounds in the process, uh, after it was said and done and whatnot. And there by the grace of God, just chemo worked and I'm alive. If it didn't work, I was dead. So I cherished that whole concept of, I was that close. So, which I had to retire in 2012. They won't let you stay with cancer. And uh, I begged, I begged, please let me stay. I'll sign any waiver or any, they would not. So I was tossed off and uh, thrown off the job. Well, not thrown off without a pension, but I was, I had no choice. They wouldn't let me stay. Mm -hmm. So life was a little strange for a while. I was really physically beat up for about a year and a half, but I went, went right back to my other side jobs. I, I did theater security. I drove trucks. 
Uh, I ended up becoming a stagehand in the uh, filming and TV union in New York City. Uh, I had the pleasure of working on a show called Rescue Me, which unfortunately didn't make us look good at times, but it was a show. And the gentleman who did it, Dennis Leary, is a huge, huge fan of first responders and military. He's donated millions and millions of dollars to help fire departments. Specifically, uh, we helped rebuild New Orleans firehouses after Hurricane Katrina, and Dennis funded it. So that made me feel okay with working on that show. And uh, I was lucky enough to be the guy driving the fire truck. <laughs> so when I needed a job years later in this, the stagehand world, my boss from Rescue Me, John, John Tesla, who's a wonderful human being, got me a job. And, uh, and I'm blessed to have it. And I still have it. I took a little downtime because of COVID. Uh, you know, with leukemia, I don't, I don't want to uh, push the envelope, so to speak. Mm. So I've been laying low. Uh, but I'm thankful that I had that opportunity. And recently, um, folks from Iron Lights had an idea. They, they wanted to do a, uh, a project based on 9-11, some stories about good folks that did some good things. And um, at first, I was a little worried because I said, well, look, it, it's got to be for charity because I, I can't you know, maximize off this. And they said, no, 100% charity. Mm-hmm. And then when I, I spoke to some of the folks and, you know, uh, Alex, Alex was, uh, you know, keying me in onto what it was about and whatnot. Uh, I, I said, okay, I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I want to do this. So what we're basically doing is we're going to tell 20 stories of 20 people that were associated with 9-11. Some died that day, some didn't. Some have died since that day, from that day, from illnesses. And the, the main theme of all of these folks, the, the interconnection of all of them is they're great people from different cultural backgrounds, uh, just, just an array of different people with different personalities, different heritages, but it shows the melting pot we are. I mean, we have uh, a story about our chaplain, Father Michael Judge, who died tending to us as he was blessing everyone going in, was killed in the process. Uh, a dear friend of his, who was Captain Patrick Brown, who was command of Ladder 3, who died. And ironically enough, one of the gentlemen we interview, who was an engineer, uh, Mac Hanna, who was was pivotal in, in rescuing dozens of people from the upper floors and, and physically carried a man, helped carry a man 78 floors and encountered Captain Brown on the 21st floor. And Captain Brown said to him, you have to leave. He said, no, I'm waiting for medical help for the gentleman, Mo, who was with him. And Captain Brown said, no, sir, you have to go down, get to West Street. No one is coming up. And he thanked him and had a conversation. Max showed him where they can get into the vending machines to get waters because the guys obviously walking up 78 flights of stairs were parched beyond. And Mac tells a story about how he took that drink that he got with Captain Brown and carried it down in his pocket and got out of the building, was the last known survivor to get out of that building, was drinking that drink, and then the building went down. So there's some powerful connections of these people who had no idea they were bouncing into each other. And years later, their stories would just mix. Uh, it's been powerful and humbling to hear some of the accounts of some of these folks. There's yeah. this beauty. And, yeah, and yeah. you can capture these individual different stories all related to the same event. And I imagine oftentimes in some of your interviews, you don't, in the course of the interview, you might even find certain connections that are happening while you're interviewing these folks. Peace and all oh, 
Joe, it's so humbling. It's so humbling to hear them. There's this one beautiful couple, Joe and Sonia Agron. They're 70 years old. Joe's a retired police officer. Sonia was one of the Red Cross angels. We call them the angel ladies that were down there tending to us with everything we needed, food, soup, you know, a cool, a cool towel when it was hot. Just, and they're both fighting very, very serious cancers right now. And when you see this beautiful couple sit in front of you and tell their story, and they're so humble, and they're so stoic, and you think to yourself, I think to myself, my fight was nothing compared to their fight. My fight was a, a really quick, compressed, intense battle. And now it's been, you know, somewhat of a holding pattern. You know, the fear of the cancer has been there every single day for the last 10 years. But the physical battle that they're going through, treatment after treatment, surgery after surgery, not for me. I haven't, I haven't witnessed that myself. And I feel so humbled, almost embarrassed to be in their presence. And they're smiling. And what they're saying, and all of them are saying is, we just want it to be September 12th, 01 again. And the strange thing about September 12th was, as sad of a day as it was, it was a happy day because thousands and thousands of Americans were lined up along the West Side Highway with American flags, with signs of encouragement, with cases of water to hand out to us as we were walking in back to the site to, to search. And it didn't matter what race, what creed, what sexual orientation, it did, did all that crap went out the window. Everybody was hugging and loving on each other. And now yeah. it's gone. It's divided. Look at the angry faces. I like to smile and look at people and greet them and say hello, strangers. And now they look at you like you're out of your freaking birdcage, right? I mean, it's what happens. Like, what happened with good morning, ma'am? Good morning, sir. Holding a door. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't get it. Like, where did that go? Where did it vaporize to? And I think what it is, is these, these forces, these, I don't want to, who are we going to blame the media or the politicians, but they're both guilty of pitching this anger and animosity. You know, if you have a little campfire that's just embers, if you keep throwing little cups of gasoline on it, it's going to explode. And that's what these idiots keep doing. They keep throwing cups of gasoline on this little smoldering fire. Let the damn fire go out, right? I'm being a fireman now talking fire stuff. Let the fire go out. And let's start all over. Like enough. We we can't. This this house divided cannot stand. And and it has nothing to do with anyone's political affiliation or this or that. It's just humanity. If we can't be civilized human beings toward each other, how the hell can we can we move on? You know, when I take my flying lessons, which you know I haven't done now since COVID and whatever, but there's. There's, a, there's an airport I go to, and there's this dog park across the street from the airport. And I sit there in amazement. There's like 60 dogs flying around in this dog park. They're just having the time of their friggin' life. Bones are flying up in the air, little, you know, chew toys, this, that. And they're all getting along. And I find that amazing. 60 different dogs, some big, some small, some this, some that. And they're all getting along. <laughs> and I'm saying, why the frig can't people do that, right? I mean, you, you throw 60 yeah. people from different backgrounds right now in an arena, they're going to beat the shit out of each other. And it's, it's got to stop. We need some harmony. We need some, like, we, I, t I tell my kids, stop, look up from the phone, look up in someone's eyes and look up to your creator and be thankful and be grateful. But no one is listening to each other anymore. 
We just, we just, we're caught up in our own little individual stratosphere, right? People are just, watch, watch people when they're driving. I had a girl coming at me the other day at 50 miles an hour, staring at her phone over the yellow line. And I couldn't go anywhere. I was on the side of a, a road that had a, a like a, a cliff, a drop off with a guardrail. And I'm, I'm literally just about stopped and I'm going, I'm dead because this girl is so caught up in her little stupid conversation right now. And she finally looked up in horror when she realized she was about to just crush my truck and she veered off. That scared me because I'm like, whoa, people are not like, in touch anymore. It's almost like you have to listen to podcasts in order to have any, have any conversations with anybody these days. Maybe that's why it's true. Joe, it's true because you have to listen, right? It's an audible. Yeah. It's audible stimulation that you don't get anywhere else. I know you're right. I remember remember being a kid. I remember being a kid loving listening to baseball games, right? I was obsessed with baseball as a kid and I was blessed enough to meet one of my childhood uh, heroes was a guy, Bill Buckner, that famous uh, Boston Red Sox first baseman and the ball went through his legs. And I, I still, he was one of my, I was a first baseman and a pitcher. So I idolized the guy. I got to meet him about seven, eight years ago and he's since passed away. But I said to him, I said, Mr. Buckner, I said, I used to listen to the games. And he goes, wait a minute. He goes, you're, you're a young guy. You, what do you mean you listen to the games? I said, I rather listen to the games on the radio because I used to close my eyes and picture myself being in Yankee stadium or being in Fenway park, running across the outfield to, you know, like, like I, I just, I don't know, it was something about trying to, in, you know, in, envision where you really were. And I think podcasts are, are bringing that back for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, it's something we need because we need, like people need to be entertained, but I think at the same time, you need to use your mind a little bit and, and listening is using your mind. Absolutely. Now your 20 for 20 podcast it actually launches. We're actually doing this interview on the second of September. Um, yes, but this episode is going to release on uh, Monday. What would be the Monday? The uh, what? The seventh or eighth? Twitter, um, yeah, the sixth. The sixth is sixth. Monday. Yeah. So yeah. You, if you're listening to this, it's on the sixth of September. But your twenty for twenty podcast launches today on September second. Yes, sir. And you're, you're our inaugural flight. Um, you, know, you, you are the first person <laughs> awesome. that was kind enough to show us some love and, and just, you know, kind of put the word out there. Yeah. It, it's exciting. Um, and I mean, I listened to Frank Sillers, your interview with Frank Sillers, him telling his story about his brother. Um, yes. Fascinating. Um, I listened to a, a couple of the other ones too. And it's interesting, you know, each story is so separate from the others because it's, told by that personal account, but yet they all interconnect in, in some way, you know, and um, it reminds me of so many things, you know, happened in my, my days in the Marine Corps. You, you think you get your little individual story and you meet somebody else that was there that has their story and somewhere those stories connect. And uh, it's fascinating listening to some of the interviews. Now, what's it like for you, all the things you've done being a podcast host, that's a different role. It's it's definitely a different role. Um, I've I've had some some pretty fun experiences in my life. Uh, one of my best buddies, Big Bobby, uh, we we they called us Laverne and Shirley. We've we've done a lot of things together. And at one point, with Broadway Theater Security, we we had a bodyguard, Tom Hanks, at night after he'd come out of the show. He did a five month 
show called Lucky Guy about a uh, legendary New York City uh, newspaper reporter, Mike McAlary. And this was probably back in about 13 or 14, 2013. And when we came into work and our boss said, yeah, you know, for the next bunch of months, uh, you're, you're going to be walking uh, Tom out at night and, you know, make sure no one jumps, you know, jumps in front of him. This I said, well, sir, who's Tom? He's all Tom Hanks. And I'm like, yeah, all right. So sure enough, at the end of the night, here comes Tom Hanks. Hey, guys, you're my guards. I'm like, oh, yeah, yes, sir, we are. You know, it was a little weird. So it's almost got that kind of weirdness. And and I and I mean that humbly, like having that job, I, I took that as, you know, as a high honor that my boss trusted us enough to, to you know, yeah. to to protect this man you know um and you know big bobby played for indiana U, and he's, he's still got some skills he's a big guy so but anyway uh this is totally different um the one thing i've learned in the military and the fire department is you try to adapt quickly you try to you know if you get knocked down or, or flipped over you try to get on your feet jump yeah. up survey the situation quickly and move on uh you know, I, I don't, I don't like my voice. Uh, I feel like it's too tinny. And Nobody sometimes does. sounds right. And sometimes, you know, I could be, I could be uh, very New York. Well, my wife teases me and says, yeah, you, you morph into being in Tennessee quickly. And, and it's true. Cause you know, sometimes you're, you're a little embarrassed, whatever. You don't want to be stigmatized, <laughs> but yeah, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I'm enjoying it because of how humbling it is. I like to be humbled. Uh, I know that sounds a little weird, but mm-hmm. sometimes if you start running away with yourself in life, you lose focus, you lose being grateful, thankful. And I'm so humbled. I'm honored by these folks trusting me to tell their story. And, and I don't, I don't like telling my story, Joe, because, uh, and I mean, I would gladly tell you obviously respectfully, but because I don't want people to think this is about me. It's not, I was, I was off duty that day. I got out with my life and now I'm ahead of cancer. So many of my friends, died that day and i've watched them die of cancer since so this is about them this is about trying to right the wrongs you know we went for years begging for people to pay for our medical bills and there's a man we did a story on john feel john feel is a just an icon a hero to responders john was was a construction worker who was seriously seriously injured and almost died and was left on his own with hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical bills. And he, with a beautiful gentleman, firefighter, Ray Pfeiffer, who fought terminal cancer for nine years, and and Detective Alvarado, who's since passed away, who was fighting terminal cancer, and and all of these guys who were so sick. And uh, the, the the actor, John Stewart, was kind enough to, to, take, to pick up the torch and run, run with those guys to get the federal legislation to cover our medical bills. When I got out of the hospital, I was on the hook for about $125,000 bill. I spent a month in the cancer ward and no one wanted to pay it because my insurance said, well, wait, this is terrorism. We don't cover that. And workers comp was like, well, cancer isn't a line of duty injury. So we don't cover that. So I got the old, uh, you know, the old ping pong shuffle, right. By the people you you supposedly trust paid my premiums for almost 25 years. And now, there's guys showing up to my house, taking pictures while my little girl was outside playing. And I ran out one day and grabbed this guy by the collar because I thought he was some sort of weirdo. And he's like, sir, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm an investigator. There, there, there's a lien being put on this property due to a non-payment of a medical bill. I said, okay, I know who you are. I said, wait till my kids go inside. Take all the pictures you want. Don't step on my property line. And the guy did his job. Mm. And I went in the house, Joe, and I, was, I, was, I felt so betrayed. 
to the point of tears. I said, I've done everything I've, I could in my life to serve this country, serve the citizens of New York, be a good, decent man like my father taught me to be. Do your job, love your family, do your job and, and love your country and, and, and be thankful to God for your life. And I did all of them. And now I was on, on the hook for losing. I was literally going to lose my house. Wow. And a man like John Field came in and he rescued me. He was, he would not let these politicians duck and dive. I watched him and Ray Pfeiffer and detective Alvarado literally chase these politicians down in the halls of Congress. And these cowards ducked into closets and into meeting rooms. They, when they saw John feel and his army coming down the halls, they ran. <laughs> and, and it was, it was, it was actually like, it was laughable, but at the same time, it was sad because these very politicians who lined up for 20 deep, on 912 and 914 and 915 and you know 13 to, to get pictures with responders and tell us how much they loved us they were nowhere to be found a couple of years later when we needed their help nowhere well wow. and and it's and so tell, sad he tells that story on on the 20 for 20 podcast yeah john john we do an interview with john and john is just he's such a he's such a humble gentleman you 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 don't see the ferocious battlefield john when you see him Mm -hmm. off of when he's doing what he's got to do. And he's just such a great guy, such a humble guy. And yet he's done so much for so many thousands and thousands of us. You know, now I'm covered. If my cancer comes back with a vengeance or leads into another cancer, my bills will be paid. And if I die, my wife will get my pension. And, you know, they won't have to worry about being on the hook for a half a million or a million dollars of medical bills and lose their home. John Feel the Feel Good Foundation with the Zadroga federal legislation and Detective Jimmy Zadroga, his dad, retired police chief, was another man who was so instrumental. And they tried to say that Jimmy didn't die a hero because when Jimmy was dying of advanced lung disease, his doctor advised him to grind up his pain pills and just take them in any ways he could, snort them in, or, you know, drink them, drink them in with water just so they could absorb quickly and take his pain away. And they tried to say he died of a drug overdose. Here's this hero detective who gave his life in the line of duty. And these bastards tried to deny his claim. And that's what set this in motion. Jimmy's dad and, and John Feel and, when, you know, Ray Pfeiffer, God rest his soul, Detective Alvarado, God rest his soul. They died as this was all finally coming after the battle. And, and John Stewart literally had to shame them. You know, I might not agree with John Stewart all over the years on, on everything he was about, this and that. But I tell you what, I'd like to hug him one day and say, thank you, sir. You solidified my family's future. And I know that if my cancer comes back, I can go to rest easy. You know, my first time battling, I, I was scared. I started getting bills three days after I got into the hospital. I didn't get out for 29 days, or 28 days. And it was all these claims uh, and they wouldn't, my insurance wouldn't cover them. And I started panicking. I'm saying, my God, I'm barely getting by now with three jobs and bills and mortgages and this and that. What the hell am I going to do fighting cancer to pay these bills? Yeah. And, and you, the betrayal and the stress that it brings these, these people that are fighting for their life. It's so sad. It makes you so cynical and jaded. And that's why you get pissed off at the system because you say, I do everything I'm supposed to do, but you're rewarding assholes and you're hurting good people. It's not supposed to be that way. Yeah. And a large part of this mission what we're on is 
straight down the middle, no politics, no agenda. Tell the stories of great, great human beings from all walks of life, all races, all creeds, and just say, this is the way Americans are supposed to be. You're supposed to be a good person. Do your job. Love the people around you and not be destructive and hurtful. Absolutely. Hey, Niels, dude, we're out of time. We've gone way over, but that's okay. Hey, uh, how do we find the 20 for 20 podcast? Oh, I appreciate the time. Sorry, I uh, my Irish uh, gift of gab went way, way over. Um, I don't know. We're, we're at uh, 2420FOR20podcast.com. Uh, so 2420podcast.com. Um, it's produced by Iron Light uh, Labs. Iron Light Labs is, is the basically the company that is putting this all together and getting it out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, like you said, 20 episodes. Um, each story very different. Um, but the main theme of all of them is be good, be a good person, be thankful. And you know what? It's okay to thank people who are out there risking their life right now. Military, police, responders, EMS, nurses, doctors. You know, there's a lot of people out there making 30 and 40 grand. And they're willing to, they're willing to sacrifice every one of their tomorrows so you can continue with your today. That's pretty huge as far as I'm concerned. So I thank them all the time. They look at me sometimes, you know, like, what's this guy about? I say, hey, I just want to say thanks for being out there today. You're protecting me and my family. So, Joe, thank you, sir. Thank you for your service. Thank Thank you, all your listeners, your listeners for their service, because I know there's a lot of vets out there. And guys and girls, please know that you, you didn't do this in vain. Your sacrifice is really appreciated by the good people out there. God bless you all. and God bless America. And thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing your story, Neil. It's very powerful. Appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. God bless. All right. We are out of here. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike.